Welcome to the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at montereychurch.com. We are talking about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit that comes out of Galatians 5. And I'm pretty sure we've read that text almost every single week. So we're not going to read it this week, but we have been talking about those fruit. And so far we've talked about love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. And this week we're going to be talking about goodness. And to be honest with you, coming out of the king of my heart, into this, I had to take a pause back there for a few moments just to let God wash over me because that was amazing to hear you guys singing back there. Y'all couldn't see me, but I had my arms stretched out back there just listening to you guys sing, and it was good. Before we get into goodness this morning, though, I want us to kind of be reminded that the fruit that we're discussing is not our fruit. The fruit we're discussing is the fruit of the Spirit, It's not the fruit of Joey, it's not mine, it's not yours, it's not the fruit of Sam or Barry. It is the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of Holy Spirit. I want you to imagine for a few moments uh, for me, if the Bible came and said, uh, I want you on your own just to go do these nine things. These are nine characteristics, and I want you to go do them, and I want you to do them perfectly. I want you just to, if you're not this, you're not being a good Christian, you're not being a good follower. I want you to go do these nine things, and that's all it said. Go do these nine things. I want you to go and be loving, be joyful, be peaceful. Who here feels like they're peaceful right now in here? I'm serious. Who here feels peaceful? We got, okay, a couple people, several people who aren't. So either you're not with peace right now and or you don't want to raise your hand. Be peaceful, be patient, be kind, be good. Be faithful, be gentle, and be self-controlled. Go and do. Ready, set, go. And that's all it said. That exhausts me thinking about that because I know I'm never going to be able to do that ever. I just can't go do that. If we want to see what that looks like, we can go back and look at the Old Testament and see how they could not do this. So there has to be something more that's going on here because I'm not perfect, we're not perfect, and we can't do this perfectly. And I think that's exactly what Scripture's trying to tell us about this fruit, that it's not about me, that it's not about what I can go and do. Many years ago, I worked for an insurance company, and my boss, for the majority of my time there, his name was Jack. Jack was an atheist, No question marks. And Jack knew that I was a Christian, but we never really talked about it. We never had any tension about it, but we never also ever really talked about it until one day. Jack and I go to lunch together and we're in the car and completely out of the blue, Jack says to me, Joey, I think you're a pretty smart guy and I respect you, but I cannot for the life of me understand why you are a Christian Why do you let some religion tell you how to live with these rules? Why do you let it tell you what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is bad? Why do you believe in that? And I sat there in the car for a long time trying to figure out how to answer him until finally I said, Jack, let me ask you a question then. To answer your question, let me answer by asking you this. How do you determine what is right and what is wrong? How do you determine what is good and what is bad? And Jack said, I I don't know, I guess I I do it based upon the law, the Constitution, the the government, the the law that sits out there that tells me I shouldn't do this or I can do that. And I I follow that law. I want to be a good person. 
I said, fair enough. But those laws, even the Constitution, can be amended and changed. People can change the laws and reestablish a new right or a new wrong. One day something can be wrong or bad, and the next day it might be right and good. And based upon that alone, if that's what we believe in only, what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is bad, changes based upon the opinions and desires of people. And I admit that's a bit of an oversimplification. I agree. So I explained to him that the God that I believe in is the God that has existed since the beginning of time. He, from the very beginning of the time, of time, determined what was right and what was wrong. From the very beginning of time, he determined what was good and what was bad. How we treat one another is determined based upon how he treats us. And over thousands of years, over millions of years, those things have never changed. He has never changed. And I know that my God, our God, is good because this is the same God that sacrificed himself in the form of Jesus to save us from ourselves. And after I said this, Jack goes, all right. Jack didn't get it. He didn't understand it. But the point is this, as Barry has said several times in this series, the fruit of the Spirit is never manufactured. We can't go do or create these things. They exist because they are God. They are displayed through us because of Jesus and the power of Holy Spirit that's in us. And that all happens by us surrendering, submitting, and following him. The fruit is an indicator of what he is doing in and through us because we give him ourselves for him to do that in us. So this week we're looking at goodness. So what exactly is goodness? What does goodness look like when we are submitting to the Spirit working in and through us? And I think that today this is going to be a little bit of an odd conversation about this fruit. And it's mainly because of how we use and define the word good in our society. For example, how many times this morning did, you, did somebody say to you, good morning? How many, times did, how many times did somebody say to you, good morning this morning already? I mean, people say that? Just curious. Nobody? Wow. Again, don't want to raise hands. I had so many people say it to me this morning. Good morning. Good evening. Good night. Good luck. Good job. Good gracious. That's my grandmother. My grandmother would say that whenever she was surprised or didn't like something, she would just say, good gracious. And my, my grandfather right after her, good God almighty. How was the movie? Good. How was your ice cream? Good. How was your vacation? Good. How was your birthday? Good. How was the sermon this morning? See, okay. You missed your cue. One person in here has said good. I mean, that's a little hurtful. First service, I had at least 10 or 15 people saying good at that point. But it's okay. It's all right. It's all right. The moment's passed. I'll just let it go. I'm good. You're good. It's not bad. We're all good. We'll just pretend this didn't happen and never speak of it again. We have diluted the meaning of good to a point where it often just means not doing bad. I want to repeat that. Our society, of which we're all a part of, often defines goodness as just not doing bad. 
I don't murder people, so I must be good. I don't commit adultery, so I must be good. I don't lie, I don't steal, so I must be good. I don't look at pornography, so I must be good. I didn't watch Game of Thrones, so I must be good. I don't do the things that those people do, so I must be good. There's a big, huge difference between not doing bad and being good. Luke 18, 18 begins the story of the rich young ruler. We're not going to spend any time in that story, but it's what Jesus says in verse 18 and 19 that kind of opens a door to a disorienting idea of what good is. Verse 18 begins like this. A certain ruler asked him, meaning Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question, ruler. Fabulous question. How do I live eternally in this way? What do I do? Great question. And Jesus' amazing answer is, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Houston, we have a problem. Suddenly good takes on a whole new idea. No one is good except God alone. This past week, Malcolm and I traveled to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Malcolm uh, turned 11 this year, and for his birthday, we bought him tickets to go see Dude Perfect Tour. Dude Perfect on Tour. And now, for those who don't know what Dude Perfect is, yes, it is a weird name. It is five guys who for the last 13 years have been making YouTube videos about making trick shots with basketballs, footballs, frisbees, golf balls, ping pong balls, arrows, any kind of ball, playing cards, anything you can imagine you can shoot or throw, they've done trick shots with. And they spend a ton of time doing this, and they've gotten really good at it. They show all the bloopers of how often they miss it. But it's really cool because they show you that they make these shots, and they go bananas. And they're really good. And watching the videos, they're clean, and they're funny. They have made millions of dollars with millions of viewers. And my son, Malcolm, loves them. So we went to Tulsa, Oklahoma to see them in a huge arena with thousands of other fans. And they did hilarious skits. They did amazing trick shots. Malcolm even got a high five from one of them. There's one guy named Ty who most people like a lot. And, and Ty was in a place where Malcolm could get a high five. And he got a high five from him. And he came back. And I wish you could see, your fa see his face. You can because I recorded it. Watch this. What just happened, Malcolm? I got a high five from Ty. Did you see his face? No? Watch it. Put it back up there. Look at that. That's joy right there. Let's go back to joy. The fruit of the Spirit joy right there on his face. That was joy. And he had this face all night long. They did this two-hour show. And by the end of the show, they thanked everyone for coming out, thanked them for their support and for their years of support. And then they said they're going to take a five-minute break. And if anyone wanted to stay and stick around, they would come back out and they would share their faith. Me and Malcolm kind of just stopped and looked at each other and, hey, we're going to stick around. We want to see what they got to say. And two or three minutes later, these five guys come out, put out stools, and they said this. Dude Perfect is what we do. That's our job. It is not who we are. It's not where we find our identity and our hope. And I would say that um, especially the pressure put on young people today is that you can find uh, joy and satisfaction 
um, and things like your job title or your friends or the number of followers next to your name on Instagram. And the five of us can honestly tell you after doing this for 13 years and experiencing all of those things beyond our wildest imagination that none of those things in any amount compare to the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. If there's one thing that everybody in this room could agree upon is probably that the world is uh, a very broken place and there is still a lot of uh, evil things that happen and there are uh, a lot of bad situations out there and there's a lot of sin that exists in the world and uh, we're no different. We're not exempt from that. Even though we're called Dude Perfect, I can promise you we are uh, nothing close to that. You can just ask our wives and they will tell you straight up. We are very flawed individuals with our own issues just like anybody else. Uh, but luckily for us, um, there's a lot of complicated biblical conversations that you can have, but what we believe in the gospel at the end of the day is a very simple thing to understand, and that's that we are a broken people in need of a savior, and thankfully for us, Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago and lived a perfect life, and we could not live and died on the cross. Pretty cool, right? Pretty cool. These five guys are trying to use their platform to display God's glory, not their goodness, but his goodness. They're trying to allow people to see that this is not about them and that they're not perfect, but they have a God who is perfect. And it was a good night. Do you know why it was a good night? Because I had my son Malcolm sitting beside me. My son has watched these videos for years. He thinks they are cool. He thinks they are awesome. They are some of his heroes. And I can tell Malcolm about Jesus all day long. His mother can tell Malcolm about Jesus all day long. But when those guys, people he looks up to in this way, are on stage saying that they're not perfect, but they have a God who is and saves them, well, that is what he hears. And it was good. For them, they do this every night for the last couple months. For them, this is a, a small example of what they're trying to display in God's goodness. But what if you don't have a platform like this? What if you don't have thousands of people in an arena? What do we do on a regular basis every day? What does goodness look like when the Spirit's working in us? What does that look like? Well, turn your Bibles to chapter 15 of Luke. Luke 15. We're going to be in there the rest of our time. We're going to walk through this chapter really quickly. Luke 15, the whole chapter is about lost stuff, about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. All three of these parables are really one parable told three different ways, but with a twist on the last one. And I love the twist on the last one. The context of this chapter is found in verses 1 and 2, kind of why Jesus starts to tell these parables. It's found in verses 1 and 2, and it states this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
So this is the context. This is what's happening before Jesus decides to tell these three parables. So first, who's Jesus hanging out with? Well, he's hanging out with, with, he's sharing a meal with tax collectors and sinners. And for them, anybody who was a sinner was somebody who, to use a dude perfect term, was not hitting the bullseye. They were not hitting the target. They were off center. They weren't exactly living up to the things that they, the Pharisees and, and, and teachers of the law, thought they should be living up to. In their case, the law and all the extra laws they had made to keep the original laws. And so they considered them sinners. He's teaching, Jesus is teaching these people and building relationships with them. He's eating meals with them. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law look at this and go, "Uh uh-uh, those are bad people. And what Jesus is doing is bad. I would never do that. But what we're going to see in these parables, that this is exactly what Jesus would call good. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law don't see it. And I'm afraid, I'm afraid that too often we're much more like the Pharisees and the tax, excuse me, and the teachers of the law than we are like Jesus. Doing goodness as just not doing bad. That defining goodness is just not doing bad. And we sometimes look at what we think is bad and we're missing what is good. So Jesus, knowing this about them and also us today, knowing all these things, Jesus launches into three parables. The first is Luke 15, 3 through 7, the lost sheep. And it starts like this. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Let's go to the context. How do you think the Pharisees and the teachers of the law heard that parable? My guess is that they saw themselves as one of the 99 sheep or possibly as the shepherd looking out over their flock, which I think if they see themselves as the shepherd, they're really missing the point of the one that is lost. But there's also the piece to this that we have to do. As a writer, Luke writes it for a reader. We are readers. We just read that. So the question we have to also ask today is, how are we reading this parable? The second parable continues in verse 8 with a lost coin. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she, doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, context. How do you think the Pharisees and the teachers of the law heard this parable? My guess is that they would see themselves as one of the nine coins, shiny, desirable, still found. Or possibly the woman who's looking for the coin. Although I think Jesus may have intentionally started to make his parable, in this case, a little more problematic because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would have had to view themselves as women in that society. They wouldn't want to do that. And so all of a sudden, they've left, they're left with less options as to pick who they are in the parable. 
But I still think either way, my guessing is that they still saw themselves as righteous. They still saw themselves as good. And again, the writer leaves a reader with a question which applies to us today. How do we read this parable? How do we apply this parable in our own lives? But then Jesus tells another parable with a twist. This last parable continues in verse 11. Uh, This parable begins with a father and two sons. I'm going to paraphrase the beginning of this. Uh, The parable begins with a father and two sons. The younger son comes to his father and demands his share of the inheritance, the share of his wealth, his father's wealth. And his father divides it between his two sons and gives the the younger son his portion. The son leaves and squanders it in wild living. And after some time passes, the younger son has spent everything. He has nothing left, and he hires himself out to feed pigs, even looking at the food he's giving the pigs and wishing he could eat some of it. Because, see, the younger son had no food. He had nothing and was starving, and no one would help him. And he thought of his father. He thought how he might go back and repent before his father. And plead to be a servant in his house, humbled and broken. Verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to the son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. So they began to celebrate. And here comes the twist. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to come in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. The father went out. To the older son and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, The father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. The title of this section is called Lost Son, The Lost Son. We titled it that. It doesn't say that anywhere in any of the manuscripts we have. It doesn't say lost son. So the question we have to kind of answer here is, who's the lost son that we titled it after? By the end of the story, who's the lost son? The younger son who leaves and returns did everything wrong, yet returns beyond humble, 
changed, vulnerable, with outstretched hands towards the Father, expecting nothing but hoping, hoping for mercy, forgiveness, grace to be a servant in his father's house. Or the older son who stayed, who looks like and acts like the good son, always working, always doing what is right, but filled with an entitlement and a pride at how good a son he is. The older son held contempt and judgment for his father. He would let, how would he, how, excuse me, why would the father let this bad son come back into the house? Not only that, but use a fattened calf to celebrate the younger son. A calf that when we stop and think about it is actually part of the older son's inheritance. How dare his father give to this bad son what was his, his. He felt threatened of what he was going to lose. What I believe is the lost son, the older son, simply continues to justify being good by just not doing bad like that guy, the younger son, like that guy, my father, who's taking what is mine. Back to the context. How do you think the Pharisees and the teachers of the law heard this? And the question for us How do we hear this parable today? I want us to also notice that the writer does not tell us what the older son did at the end of the story. He doesn't tell us, did the older son go in after the father said all that? Does he stay outside and remains bitter and frustrated? And if now, if we took a poll in here this morning, if we took a poll and I were to ask everybody, what do you think the older son did? My guess is that we would probably say the older son did not go in. He probably held this grudge and made life horrible for his brother. And to be honest, I tend to agree that's what it feels like would happen in this case. But here's the question, why do we believe that? The writer left it open-ended for us to answer that question. Why do we take such a sad, why do we carry such a sad image of what could happen in the story? And I think possibly the answer might be is we recognize that entitlement. We recognize that bitterness. We recognize it as possibly our own. And we imagine that it'll never change for the older son. But the younger son did. And yet we believe the older son can't. Why? How we read this parable and how we interpret and read its ending says more about us probably than almost anything else. Because the story of the lost son hits at the core of the gospel. And remember, the gospel means good news. The heart of what goodness looks like when we are in step with the Spirit of God requires us to give up something of ourselves for the good of others. It may be our time. It may be our comfort. It may be our pride. It may be our entitlement. It may be our food or our money or our clothes or as the case is with the good news of Jesus Christ, our lives. Luke 15 shows us that goodness goes out of its way and intentionally looks for, seeks out, searches for the lonely, the outcast, the hurting, the struggling, the lost. 
Good is the one who's willing to run and give up something of themselves for another, no matter who they are or what they have done, in hopes, in hopes that what was once lost can be found just like us. We pour out the goodness of the Father. Not my goodness, not the goodness of our politics, not the goodness of our pride, not the goodness of our opinions. Goodness is putting those things to the side. Goodness is pushing those to the side and saying, Father, not my will be done, but yours be done. And the goodness of the Father looks something like this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we started acting right. Not when we understood the implications. Not when we started being loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and self-controlled. But while we were still entitled and selfish and judgmental and broken and hateful, Christ gave the greatest good. We are good only because of the goodness that God has poured into us? Are we willing to make ourselves available to pour his goodness into others? Let's pray. Father, uh, this is uh, a difficult one for me because I resemble so many of the things in these parables, much more like the Pharisees The teachers of the law, much more like the older son, clinging to what I think is so important, clinging to what I think is mine. God, I pray that we, as a body, either begin or continue or shift or whatever has to happen, God, to move in a way that submits to you and your goodness. That we push aside the things that we think are so important in order for your goodness to take up that space. And then we're willing to make ourselves available for it to be poured out, your goodness to be poured out to others, wherever we may find ourselves. So God, help us. We believe, but help us in our unbelief. I pray all this in the amazing saving grace of Jesus' name. And the church says, amen.